I believe, and I think you'll agree with me, that Bible translation sits at the foundation, or at least pretty close to the foundation, of Bible interpretation. Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we true the verse of Genesis 3.16, and we discover that God didn't curse Eve or Adam or limit woman in any way. This is Media Monday on the Eden Podcast. And the home of the Eden Podcast is the True 316 Foundation. Our website's tru316.com, and I'm Bruce C.E. Fleming. My co-host is Joanne Hagemeyer. Joanne, would you introduce our guest for us? Thanks, Bruce. We're here with Jeff Miller, who lives with his wife, Dana, in eastern Tennessee. He's committed to teaching the Bible, both at Milligan University, where he's employed, and in local congregations. He's also involved in worship ministry, primarily as a pianist, and for nine years, he was editor of Priscilla Papers, the academic journal of CBE International. Currently, he is the lead facilitator of CBE's Translation Project, and we're glad to have you with us, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you both. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, we've been crisscrossing our lives in different ways, but this is really the first time we're getting to know each other. Uh, can you tell us how you came to Christ, grew in him, and just get us started with, with that part of your story? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I grew up in Nebraska. I grew up in a Christian family. My parents were both very involved in ministry. My dad uh, was a Bible professor. He had almost exactly the same job that I do now. Hmm. Um, and um, so I grew, I was one of these people who was in church every Sunday I even was, I was born in November and I was baby Jesus in a nativity play in December. <laughs> and so I, just to, to be clear, I do mean every Sunday. <laughs> um, right. So a Christian family of very good people. And uh, I grew up in what is, has a, a movement that has a handful of names, the Christian churches, the churches of Christ, the restoration movement, the Stone Campbell movement. Um, we are a non-denomination and we're there's a lot of us in certain parts of the country in the world but there's other places where you just really wouldn't know those terms um, it's a pretty conservative group and i grew up complementarian by default it wasn't necessarily what i was actively taught but i must have been taught it somewhere because um I had all the complementarians' assumptions up until and throughout most of my college experience, which was a Christian college training for ministry. Mm -hmm. So then when you started flexing your muscles as a believer in Christ and you you had skills, but you also had spiritual gifts, you've been putting those to work now for a number of years. How would Tell us about your ministry story. In college, I was preparing to be a pastor, a preaching minister. That's um, That did not happen. <laughs> and looking back on it, if I can be honest with myself and transparent to you, I think there was some arrogance in that. That might sound like an odd thing to say, but at the time... My assumption was that it's the better students 
the smarter students, the ones who are better at Greek and Hebrew, um, who become pastors. And if you want to be a children's minister or a worship minister, then you're, well, that's fine. And, and that's a ridiculous thing for me to say now, looking back on it, but that's how I felt at 18 and 19 years old. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm, you know, cream of the crop, I'll become a preacher. Well, I ended up in youth ministry after that, <laughs> uh, just because it's the way it worked out. And I did that for eight years and I loved it. And I, I saw the benefit of academic training, of course, just like you would as a pulpit minister, but I, I valued it in every way. And also ended up doing worship ministry over the years in part-time capacities, interim capacities. And so I guess I've been working to prove my 19-year-old self wrong for a long time now. Eventually, however, as you said in my bio, I became a professor. And I don't regret any of my time before that in youth ministry or worship ministry. It was good preparation. But now I'm in my 25th year of teaching Bible at a college, and I don't plan to quit anytime soon. So you're, you're getting pretty good. You're Now you're probably up to 25 books through the Old Testament. Eventually you're going to get around to the New Testament. Is that right? <laughs> That's one way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> count a little different. All right. Maybe you do count different. And we'd also like to ask about your True 316 story. Have you? How did you first hear about us? And do you see any value in the, the Genesis 316 message that God didn't curse Eve or Adam or limit woman in any way? I do. I, I first became aware of you and your ministry through your book. Um, and then from that to the website, um, I think that I received a gratis copy of that book in the mail, for which I would thank you. And so it's on my shelf and it took me to the website. And, you know, because I teach Bible, an Old Testament survey to freshmen, I've got about 70 freshmen right now. Today's topic was Ruth, but we were in Genesis just a month ago. It really is pervasive, isn't it? How people use the word curse, um, either because they assume Adam and Eve were both cursed or because they're just being um loose or not precise with their language right and so i i point out in class and i point out in conversation all the time no uh this is not a curse the the results of you know you know what i'm talking about better than most people the the childbearing results and the land won't give its crops readily results you know i much prefer words like consequences and results than giving the impression that this is god's will for for the future or for people so you used a one a kind of a keyword a little bit ago and then in your bio we talked about this uh, translation project um 
Can you tie that together? For example, let's say this. Why would you want to be involved in a translation project? What's the need for that? Thank you. Good question. Uh, I believe, and I think you'll agree with me, that Bible translation sits at the foundation, or at least pretty close to the foundation, of Bible interpretation. Um, how can we possibly interpret in commentaries, in sermon preparation, in lesson preparation, in devotions, in communion meditations, or just in our own quest for understanding, how can we possibly get closer to the truth if the translation we're reading from obscures it? It puts this barrier in front of us. Um, which for some people is insurmountable. How how do you overcome a translational bias or barrier if you don't even know it's there? It's hard enough if you do know it's there and you go through the work of getting five or seven translations, uh, looking up reference works with Hebrew and Greek, etc. So it's foundational in that regard. I'm really curious about your own process of moving from what you described as sort of a default complementarian way of seeing things to your current place. I mean, that's a big process. It's a big change. It sure is. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, it's a long story. And I've been asked this question a lot of times, and I imagine that you all have too. Um, for those of us who grew up complementarian or by default complementarian. Mm -hmm. And maybe I should write it all out someday because I know the pieces, but I haven't pieced them together into, uh, into a, like a coherent story. So here are the pieces. Number one, my whole journey of grappling with texts like Genesis 3 and 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 and Galatians 3.28 and all the others, that has all happened in the context of having a mother who is strong in her personality, firm in her beliefs, and a servant in the church. It has all happened in the context of having a wife who is very gifted very much a servant heart and has been employed by the church for a long time. Right now she is uh, a school teacher, but for many, many years she was a children's minister. And so working with the church staff and volunteers and almost all of it has happened in the context of having two daughters. And now later on, um, granddaughters. So Watching my mom, watching my wife, and wanting the best uh, open doors for my daughters is the kind of relational and personal context in which all the exegesis happens. Mm -hmm. I'll, the next piece of the story, not next chronologically, but just the next one, and as I think it through, I mentioned college earlier. So... Mm -hmm. College was kind of a, a a cauldron of these ideas for me. I remember with some embarrassment, can't believe I'm saying these things on your podcast, but I remember with some embarrassment just how 
deeply and naively complementarian I was in high school and early college. I also remember uh, watching my faculty and I think I learned, I think I found a way forward, not only from their teaching, but from their approach to teaching and, and their lives. So I have one professor, for example, um, who was extremely conservative and his beliefs and in his methods, there are no exceptions to anything and the text can only mean one thing. What I mean by that is it has to mean the one thing that he knows it means. And you have to put that on your tests and your quizzes, just like he said it. And so I experienced some of that and it left me thinking, I don't want to be that way. Uh, I don't want my students, if I ever, I mean, I didn't know I was going to be a professor, but I don't want the people I minister to, to think that my main role in this world is to be a know-it-all. I, I had another... When, when I went to seminary, they, they, you know, there are some seminary jokes. And one of them was about a professor like that. They said, where the Bible was clear, he was clear. And where the Bible wasn't clear, he was clear. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So in my I, I remember another professor who was he was in some ways like that, but he was more like, I will admit I'm wrong if you prove me I'm wrong, mm. which, of course, is hard to do from a student's point of view. But I think that's a step in the right direction. He was firm in his beliefs and um, kind of rigorous in his methods, but he was also willing to change if the text changed him. Um, and then another professor I had was much more, well, uh, how, how should I say this? Um, he, I think he, in, in retrospect, I mean, he, he was at the time younger than I am now, right? But I still view him as an older person. Um, he was, I think, searching. And so he felt free to ask questions and say, I don't know when he didn't know. And I won't list all my faculty for you, but I, I have one more who was a, a committed egalitarian, but also was committed to only proceeding in unifying ways. So he had no interest in arguments. Mm -hmm. He would much rather just be a mentor or an encourager than an arguer. And so somewhere I came out of all that trying to, mod to mimic and grow from the the better parts of all those approaches. Yeah, so that that's my college life. Then I ended up in seminary. This would be the 90s now in seminary. And I think the main thing there was just for the first time in my life, I had much more freedom. If I changed my mind about something or if I raised a question that everybody else in the room thought was a crazy question, I, I wouldn't be looked down upon I wouldn't be pulled aside later. And so just the freedom to think and study and read and interact and informally with people took me almost all the way to where I am today in this stance that Bruce phrased earlier of um, women. Well, exactly how you said it, I don't recall, but I would say women can and should pursue God's calling in their lives. 
um, mm-hmm. regardless of what that calling is, regardless whether your denomination or your um, or the people in your lives telling you not to. Mm-hmm. So seminary got me almost all the way there. And then after that, it was more of the same. It was being in situations where I didn't have to fear for a job or for a relationship if I just thought deeply and carefully and read these books and those books. I'll keep going if you're all right with that, because um, I've, I've been thinking about these chapters in my story. I ended up at a CBE, Christians for Biblical Equality, conference in India in 2008 or maybe nine. I probably should have looked that up, but it's been long enough ago that. And that was really formational for me. By that time, I was completely egalitarian, like women can and should preach and be elders and lead denominations and. But I hadn't really encountered it as a justice issue, except for the the injustice of not being able to follow your follow your calling uh, in ministry, which of course is an injustice. But to sit alongside people who were asking different questions than me and my little non-denomination were asking was pretty jarring. They were talking mainly about women being in God's image and women having value and women not being abused and systems like dowry systems being just. Whereas I'm still hanging around with people who want to know if women can pass the offering plate. It's just (laughs) like an embarrassingly simple question Mm -hmm. to when, when you're facing, when you're sitting side by side and interacting with people with much, much bigger questions so that put me on more of a kind of a commitment to egalitarianism rather than just uh an assent to it it's funny you should use those uh words because i was just thinking in my as you were talking that you had intellectual assent but now your heart was engaged and yes. you were now, yeah. every part of you was now invested in equality. That And that is a big change. It is. I remember sitting in the Mumbai airport on the uh, waiting to go home and thinking, what am I going to do? You know, am I just going to forget about this experience? Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I made a commitment. I even said it out loud. And, and in a way it seems very simple and maybe simplistic um but in another way hopefully (laughs) it's not silly i just said i'll do what i can um and so if if i get a phone call asking me to be the editor of priscilla papers well then the answer is yes i'll do what i can (laughs) and if Bruce finds my email address and asks me to be on this podcast (laughs) for me to say no would be going back on, on that little vow I took in an airport. So, and you made me work. I had to go to the school thing and fill out the form and, (laughs) and then you were great after that. So then I discovered that you're, you're on this project and you've got 500 verses that you and your team are working on. Can you tell us about that? And, and maybe, maybe 
bring us uh, up to date on one or two of those verses? Yeah, I will. Um, yeah, so this is the Christians for Biblical Equality CBE translation project. It's going on. It's been going on for a while. It got started. Um, we could say officially or formally started in 2019 at their conference in Houston. But it has roots before that. Like by the time it started, there had already been some meetings that I was not a part of in which they chose the passages to be translated. And it, right now, that, that list of passages stands at 513 verses. At the time, it was a little shorter. But as we've worked, there's a lot of places, well, we've just expanded to get more context. So I don't know how many there was to start with, but it's 500 right now. And only an insider nerd like myself would say 513 because <laughs> I just, it was really hard <laughs> to come up with that number. So I, I use it. Um, so the, the work is done by two committees. One is just simply called the Old Testament team and one, the New Testament team. And one of them is four people. One of them is five. It's it's not the way it was by design. It just kind of fell into place with people saying yes and people saying no. And and that's that's where it landed. And these two teams have worked sometimes in person, but mostly on Zoom meetings to translate those verses. Uh, the work is done not from an existing translation. It's just done from the Hebrew text or the Greek text. Mm -hmm. Of course, that doesn't mean that we're not consulting other translations. There, there's constant looking at a large number of translations. And the Old Testament has the Old Testament team has finished its translation work and they've been done for uh, more than a year. But the next step is the commentary, and that is in process. And the New Testament team has finished all of its translations except two, two passages. So it's somewhere in the 85 to 90% range done. But also the, the commentary is in process. Um, and the commentary is very much oriented toward translation. So there are things in there about background, about theology, um, the kind of things you would find in a, in a standard commentary, but, but not very much. It's almost entirely just explaining a translation choice. And sometimes that's really easy. Like... Well, I hesitate to give an example that I just said was really easy because um, <laughs> that's an odd thing to say. It's easy for our Old Testament team, four people with PhDs in, 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 in deep knowledge of Hebrew, to decide to say side instead of rib mm -hmm. in Genesis 3.21. That doesn't mean it's easy right? They had to learn Hebrew, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they had to study the matter, and they had to get the lexicons out, and they had to look at 10 or 15 other translations, and 
and then make the decision. So maybe I jumped the gun there by calling that an easy one. There's a lot of people out there who would disagree that, and they would say it should be rib. But I just mean the writing of the commentary because that's that's one sentence. All it's going to say is we have decided to say side instead of rib because that is what the mm -hmm. Hebrew word means. <laughs> mm -hmm. But there's other places where it gets really, really complex and complicated. Mm -hmm. Um. So, for example, in the New Testament, we had a very long conversation. I'm going to guess about three hours about how to translate what is usually translated son of man. Oh, yes. <laughs> and there's five people on the New Testament team. And what we're usually able to do is either come to consensus or come to two options and vote. Mm -hmm. And then we hope that the vote is four to one. I mean, we wouldn't be voting if it was five to zero. Right. Yeah. Because that's a more comfortable place to be than three to two, right? Yes. Then <laughs> are you really representing the committee's work? Well, mm -hmm. with Son of Man, we couldn't even narrow it down to two options to vote on. And there's only five of us. We've got three or four options to vote on. I'm just giving an example that shows the, the complexity or the difficulty of it. So what did mm -hmm. you come up with? Or I don't know how you did it. <laughs> well, you see, the problem is this was a year ago. And so I don't want to say it wrong. Uh, we decided to translate that phrase, um, to anthropu, the son of man, the son of, as the divine, excuse me. See, I almost said it wrong. The human son. Mm -hmm. the human son and then if it's the other phrase the son of god that would be the divine son because one of the I like it one of the things that we want to do is use those two phrases in a way that reminds you of each of the other one because it's mm -hmm. often the case that Son or Son of Man or Son of God are all in the same context. That's what we decided. But that doesn't mean all five of us decided it. <laughs> because mm -hmm. there's also just the human one, the human being, the human, uh, the son of humanity. Mm -hmm. Or the Son of Man, which we didn't mm -hmm. decide to do that, but... Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes some Bibles, it's not our choice, but some Bibles will will go with Son of Man, not because they think it's best. They probably ran into the same trouble we did and couldn't couldn't decide among themselves. And so in the end, like, well, we'll just do what everybody's doing. But no, that's not what we did. So, and it's only in I one actually, of it sounds. Go ahead, John. It sounds like it was a it was it was a very fruitful three hours actually because you. you it was. You drilled down to a concept that you really wanted to do, all of you, which was to see Jesus both as human and as divine. Yeah. And Jesus is spoken of in both of those ways throughout scripture. So this does help us to see that. Well, I, was, I think that's a great three hours. 
and a very well, interesting you. way of, mm-hmm. of uh, resolving that. Thank you for that. That's encouraging. So now if we just said that in the text, people would notice, and it might be helpful, but the commentary is essential there. There needs to be mm-hmm. commentary that says, what are the other options and why did we choose this one? So that's what the commentary mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, yeah. it's not slam dunk. You know, people just say, if, if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. The only problem was, yeah. of course, that's English. <laughs> He didn't use English. Joy and I were working on this past weekend on a, on a French translation of her book, and we went round and round on some of these words. How do we say that properly? And we had to get some more French friends in here and say, how did you say that? Oh, no, you said it that way. Wow, that's different. <laughs> so, hmm. yeah, we're dealing with translation. So God's word is clear in the Hebrew and the Greek, and now we're trying to figure out in our own languages. And we need to pray for teams like like you, Jeff, and, and and your other partners on the team and the other translation committees that are working on things like this. We want to get the, the scripture as communication, as Janine Brown likes to say. So we want to make sure that God's communicating his word to us in our words today. Thank you for your efforts. Can we check back with you, Jeff, and just see how you're progressing as time goes by? Yeah, yeah, you sure can. Okay, yeah. we'll do that. Well, we'll bring this this show to a close right now. Thank you so much, Jeff. Joanne, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been delightful. Thank you so yeah. much. All right. Thanks. True 316 Foundation is the home of the Eden Podcast. Join us for $3.16 a month or more. Let's true the verses on the key passages on women and men. Go to true316.com slash partner.